Hello and welcome to Roadrack Talks. My name is Tabby Whitman. This week we're speaking to Hunter Hosters, a former expert or nuclear strategist at the U.S. Pentagon and foreign policy advisor to the U.S. Air Force. He spent his entire career within the civilian and military factions of the U.S. Air Force and he brings a level of expertise within nuclear weapons that is seldom seen. Please enjoy this conversation and subscribe to Roadrack Talks. Without further ado, here we go. Hunter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tally. It's great to be here. So, Hunter, when did you get to Sweden? At the end of 2018, we both uh, left our uh, high-paced jobs in Washington and decided to come to beautiful Stockholm and settle down here. Yeah, with all our driver's license issues, I guess. (laughs) But I did pass it the first time. You did. Not surprising for somebody that that had the license to drive the Nuremberg Ring. (laughs) 11 times. <laughs> 11 times. A little bit jealous of that. Um, but we're going to get into the real subject of the interview today, and that is, of course, nuclear weapons, deterrence, and what is it that makes nuclear weapons uh, unique within a, a state's arsenal? Right. So one of the things that I found interesting uh, being here in Sweden is I've done a number of presentations on nuclear weapons, and the uh, the reason I think it's important and uh uh, I, I get such great questions and people seem interested is I think it's important. Lots of people know something about nuclear weapons. You know, they're hugely destructive. Um, they have uh, effects no other weapons have like radiation effects and things. But uh, what people don't necessarily know is how nuclear weapons strategists and nuclear armed states think about those weapons. You know, why do they find them important? How do they think about them? So uh, that's that's what I enjoy bringing to to the discussion is the perspective I had and many of my colleagues have about why these weapons do what they do, and and you touched on it, you hit it right away that these weapons are unique, right? That the the scale is uh, of, of potential destruction is huge on such a short time span that there's nothing, nothing like it. Um, conventional, all, all, bla- all conventional weapons have blast effects and nuclear weapons certainly have blast explosive effects. But of course, nuclear weapons have uh, a great deal of thermal light and other radio radiation energy. So um, they are terrifying. They can be terrifying. At the same time, they're not all the same. Um, some of the nuclear weapons warheads that were designed were much smaller than many conventional warheads. So the scale, uh, the amount of damage you do with a nuclear weapon determines, is determined by the way it's designed, which weapons effects you want to highlight, and how it's targeted. So. Lots of people think nuclear weapons are are monolithic or unitary. They're not. They're extremely flexible. Maybe later we'll get into generically or generally some of the changes in the arsenal, like in the United States over the decades, because it changed considerably. Uh, so there's that aspect of nuclear weapons, uh, their their physical effect. But of course, I'm most interested in their psychological effect. 
they continue to cause damage over a long period of time, not just the moment that it ha- the explosion happens. Well, again, that depends on how they're designed and how they're yeah. targeted. I mean, people think about things like fallout. Um, if if uh, if the weapon's uh, explosive heart, which is called the fireball, doesn't actually touch the surface, it doesn't generate any fallout. Thus, you get strategies of potentially using nuclear weapons in, in the upper atmosphere uh, to generate electronic pulses that might destroy communication systems and uh, computer systems without providing any radiation that would damage uh, people or anything on the planet uh, other than the equipment. So it really does depend on on their design and how they're targeted. But what you just said, Tavi, is exactly why part of the reason they have such an influence on people's thought process and decision-making. Strategists and nuclear powers like the United States keep these weapons for their deterrent effect. We think that these weapons are more effective at deterring uh, aggression, um, the initiation of aggression, because uh, they are they can be so devastating that's, that's for sure and we can we can see that right now with the changing um political relationships in relation to north korea right as a matter of fact just uh, uh we're recording this on tuesday i think it was just yesterday monday i saw in the news that north korea announced that they are now i don't think they used the word invulnerable but they have an effective deterrent and cannot be attacked now well, they actually had a pretty good deterrent with all their artillery in the hills yeah. conventional artillery i mean people say have said to me over the past few years well you won't attack north korea because of its small nuclear weapons arsenal and i've pointed out we haven't attacked north korea because of the amount of damage they could rapidly do to seoul uh, yeah. without without nuclear weapons so which raises another important point when thinking about nuclear weapons states powers have never needed nuclear weapons to destroy large swaths of, of property and value and kill millions of people. Uh, the fire bombing in Tokyo, which took eight months, uh, killed more people uh, than, the, uh, than, than the nuclear weapon in, in Hiroshima. Yeah. Um, but this idea of their deterrent effect, if I can get back to that, um, that is something that is in the adversary's mind. So an adversary, considers taking a hostile action. And I think Kissinger's definition of deterrence is most helpful here, that it, it, the adversary perceives you've got a capability uh, to hurt them, and you have the will to use it. And, and then that can create a deterrent effect. So even if you had nuclear weapons, and the adversary didn't think you would ever use them, Kissinger points out that this equation, so to speak, is a, is a product, not a sum. So if your capability is one and your will is zero, one times zero is zero. So this, uh, we can talk in a few minutes, I, I think helps explain why over 70 years uh, there's been arms racing, there's been arms control treaties, there's been downsizing, there's been all this movement. Because when nuclear weapons were first created, many people thought, or many strategists and, and, and po- policymakers thought, you just need a few weapons. And just like Kim Jong-un says now, you're, you're invulnerable. But uh, uh, Wolfstetter wrote a paper, ran, Howard Wolfstetter, 1958, 
called The Delicate Balance of Terror, which he lays out uh, how difficult it really is to maintain the adversary's perception that you have capability and will so that they don't act. And uh, that's, that's the way a strategist, I, uh, uh, the way I as a strategist looked at these things. What do we have to do? What capabilities do we need? What doctrines do we need? What training do we need to continue to convince the adversary, you know, mostly the Soviet Union or Russia uh, throughout history uh, that, uh, that we have the capability and the will and that, that they won't strike. Yeah, that's, I think also your, your will to act definitely changes the moment you are um, faced with an aggressive war as well. And it's hard to predict how that, that will look as well. Right, so this is, this is tied to a couple of things that I think are quite interesting. One is a concept called the long peace, right? That if you can, you can find online graphs of, of uh, as a matter of fact, there's a great video called The Fallen of World War II. Um, and part of that, the last third of that video is, is about this concept, uh, which uh, Gaddis, the historian, wrote about decades ago. How do you explain the fact that after 1945, great powers no longer fought each other? And in World War II, 2% of the world population was killed. And since then, it, it, th this hasn't happened. It's the first time in history. Mm. And, and people will say correlation is not causation. That, that's absolutely true, but but there, these two things are. It's hard to think that they're not connected yeah. in in some way. So, um, so a lot of folks uh, are worried that if we eliminated nuclear weapons, we would go back to those levels of slaughter because powers would think it would be safe to to fight each other again. Hopefully we'll never get to know about that that answer. But yes, I that's 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 what I spend a lot of time uh, helping to <laughs> to not have to uh, not have to deal with. There's something else that's different about the United States when it comes to nuclear weapons um, that people might be interested in. The fact that we deployed we 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 deployed nuclear, but we extended nuclear guarantees to our NATO allies. Um, at the creation of NATO. So at that time, we guaranteed their existential survival with our own nuclear forces. That was at a time when the Soviet Union couldn't harm us with nuclear weapons, really. And uh, so that kind of guarantee even predates uh, our own deterring for ourselves, so to speak, in the homeland. And and that's, that's unique to American policy. And there are two reasons, a couple of reasons for that, at least. One is, of course, to prevent aggression against allies. But another reason was to support nonproliferation, which may seem counterintuitive uh, to some people, because uh, the United States did not want its own allies gen developing their own nuclear weapons. Um, there was, a, there's been over the decades a a long, long discussion about whether the world's safer with more nuclear powers or fewer. Well, the United States decided early on it was fewer. And, and of course, part of the real reason too is the United States wants to be the, the preeminent power, uh, not just the only power. So, so that's something else that's a little bit different. I guess the thought pattern there is that if 
they have the nuclear guarantees from somebody else, they might not need, feel need or desire to put the, the amount of money it takes to create nuclear weapons into the, the creation. Um, the issue there is when you have a person like Donald Trump in the White House who starts to question the nuclear or the um, American investments in, 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 in Europe, for example, and withdrawing troops from, for example, Germany, which was a widely panned idea um, based on the, the fact that those troops there in Germany were maintaining the logistics for the entire, well, um, European and Middle Eastern hemispheres um, logistics, for example. Yeah, so, the, you know, this is interesting, too. And, of course, everything looks different in a Trump salad, uh, although salad's been around for a long time. Um, presidents, going back to Eisenhower, have not necessarily publicly themselves, but their administrations have taken very hard lines and protested that the NATO allies were slackers and they weren't spending enough money. It goes all the way back to the 50s. Everybody's done it. Now, like many things, nobody's done it like Trump. Uh, it, and it certainly has, has spooked uh, some people. And, uh, uh, you know, whether or not Trump's intent is to just nudge people into spending more or not, uh, I think most people think that, no, Trump might really walk away. The United States doesn't uh, support NATO disproportionately for NATO. They do it for the United States. So mm. although the United States might protest and Trump might protest, I'm not sure Trump personally understands that this has been a, a, a gain for the United States because uh, Trump has pretty consistently uh, pushed back against any multilateral mm. uh, deals, to, to, to use one of his words, even though these multilateral things have... Uh, have really, really helped the United States. Um, and to, to your point, uh, your other point, Tavi, about expenditures, it, it's absolutely right. We'd rather not have our allies spending money on nukes. We'd rather have them spending money on cyber or transportation or something else that's, that's, uh, that's relevant and, and there's a gap. But those same type of opportunity costs are true outside the nuclear world when it comes to these multilateral agreements. If you're going to walk away from all these, there are big opportunity costs there too. So uh, anyway, slight diversion. I guess. Slight diversion, but I think, I think it was worth it either way. And let us tie into something else that um, Donald Trump, or at least the administration he leads, did um, this year. And that is placing the, the low yield W76-2 uh, nuclear warheads on the um, USS Tennessee, which is a Ohio-class submarine. This was justified by saying that it was filling a gap in the US um, deterrent capabilities um, in relation to Russia, um, providing a, a new element to that. Um, and the W76-2 is a five kiloton um, warhead that can be launched via submarine. So it's, it's, a, it's a change. Um, from, for example, the, w, the W88, which is um, significantly larger at its 465 or 455 kilotons. Y yes, uh, th this opens up a door, but 
I'd like to lay a little groundwork just before we yeah. get into these kind of details. There's a new book out called The Myth of the Nuclear Revolution by Kier Lieber and Dale Press, a couple of gentlemen I know pretty well and highly respect academics in this field. And uh, I think it's a great bookend to Wolfstetter's 1958 paper from Rand because they take now, now the book is is empirical and it's academic it's theoretical it's actually quite accessible though and uh, and I think their insights are huge they've they've said that their 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 claim is that the theory of of the nukes changed everything is is wrong and it's demonstrably false and we can see that and, and prove it and the problem is that the theory about how nuclear weapons work in the mind and decision making has is is in error it's not right and they propose kind of a new theory their proof that things haven't changed is even though during this period that i've we've talked about called the long peace there's been arms racing there's been alliance building there's been all sorts of uh competition and 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 if the, the standard nuclear theories, theory was correct, those things should stop. And I, I think uh, the general public would think that that makes perfect sense. If you have nuclear weapons, well, you don't need a large conventional army. You don't need to fight over other things because this, this all goes away. But the truth is that stuff never stopped, right? Only direct large-scale conflict stopped. And 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 they, so they looked into that and they said, well, you know, a, a lot of people that study this say, well, the leaders are irrational. They're, they're not making decisions uh, uh, consistent with our theory. And, um, uh, I, you know, I, I have a good major chuckle about that uh, where, where people uh, say, well, uh, my theory's right. It's everybody's actions are wrong. So uh, Daryl and Keir, they weren't satisfied with this. And they looked into the question of why do nuclear powers keep competing, even in dangerous ways? And, and they bring it back to something I alluded to, but they articulate it very well. It comes to the issue of creating a stalemate, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to create a stalemate which I think reintroduces the concept of a mutually assured destruction condition, MAD. But you have to create a stalemate. And the general way to do that is to ensure that you've got some nuclear capability that can survive an attack. But then the question becomes, once you've created the stalemate, does it automatically continue? So the second thing you have to do is you have to sustain the stalemate, right? And then the third part of stalemate is how do you use the nuclear weapons to deter non-nuclear or respond to non-nuclear attacks that might be quite serious, uh, a surprise conventional attack or a, a cyber attack that takes out vital uh, systems in a city. Uh, you know, we are so urbanized around the planet now. So those two, three, three things, how do you create it? How do you sustain it? And how do you sustain deterrence uh, of other things once you've got a nuclear stalemate? And yeah. their p point is, if these things were easy, and, and then everyone would just have small nuclear arsenals that never changed. The reason 
things like what you've brought up, the low-yield sea ballistic missile, sea launch ballistic missile, are because of the perception of, of strategists in the United States as to what they think uh, uh, Putin or Xi Jinping uh, thinks about the credibility of our weapons, our yeah. capability. And, and the thought is, if we don't have some uh, options which are less potentially destructive, we can't control that escalation or we can't inject and or, or we can't uh, uh, plan to or convince the adversary that we can. If we don't have the capability, it doesn't matter if we have the will. If we have the capability, we might might generate the will. Yeah, we have, we have some cases where uh, armies during wartime have successfully blocked their way to capability, um, which are interesting stories to read, but you can't be doing that as your your um, long-term strategy. Um, one thing I want to reflect on what you, that you mentioned very early on is the, 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 the argument that you know, leaders aren't rational actors. I think this is one of, my, one of my pet peeves when it comes to economics and these fields in general is that a lot of stuff assumes rational behavior and we are not rational creatures. And um, it's, a, it's a fool's errand to assume that a state will behave rationally. You have um, a couple hundred years of history that informs the worldview and guides how you act. So you're not going to get a completely rational um, state, no matter how much you would um, love to see it. You know, we're not, gonna, we're not all going to be as, as based on competence as Singapore, for example. You're not going to get that. So you have to, you have to um, I guess you have to account for some kind of chaos theory there, and I believe it well. Be this is yeah. Th this is uh, this would be a whole interesting other topic because I'm very much interested in behavioral economics, and um, but I would push back in saying a lot depends on how you determine how you define rationality, and the behavioral economics or uh, Homo economicus uh, model uh, is 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 a model, and it's too simple a model. There's short term, there's long term, there's, uh, you know, there are emotional stakes, there are all sorts of other things. Uh, but also, to your point, um, states are not people. Groups decide differently. And there's great essays and, and work done on, about deciding in groups and the pathologies inherent in, in just a group structure will affect the way the process will affect the way uh, what the outcome is. So, you know, there is no public will, uh, just like the, in, in the parliament, there's no, this is the, this is the, the sense of parliament. No, it's a mixture of individual MPs. And, to, and, and, and yes, it's not a simple mathematical equation, how they, uh, how they decide things. But so to, to, the, to this low yield issue, um, you know, I was, uh, this is a fairly recent issue. I was still in the Pentagon when the Trump administration's uh, nuclear policy uh, review document came out. Um, a lot of people seem to think that you need similar capabilities to deter similar. You need like to deter like. And uh, I've, I've never quite understood that. So there are two ways to think about the low yield ICBM and the proposed ground launch cruise missile return. Those are, th some people have said they're bargaining chips. 
that will decide not to do them, you know, um, which maybe many people think, and we might, might talk about this, Putin's threats of new systems that he made in 2018, many on the U.S. side think those are kind of bargaining chips too. How do we convince them not to pursue that? So part of it's tactical. Uh, once you fire a missile out of that submarine, they know where that submarine is. So <laughs> you, you, you've, we pack a lot of eggs in one basket in a, in a submarine. With a with the ground-launched ICBMs, they're all single warhead and dispersed. So there's no basket. Um, the other issue I have is that we already have low-yield capabilities. You know, the, uh, the Air Force has uh, a healthy supply of air-launched cruise missiles, you know, which are tailorable. And, and so I, I didn't understand that uh, the need for that military capability, because just like Russia's violated the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which no longer exists, and they've deployed short-range systems, which can't strike the United States, they can only strike Asia and, and Europe, depending on where they're deployed to, um, I don't see any reason for the U.S. to build those systems like that we had in the 70s and 80s. I, I mean, it worked, in the, it worked then because we built them and then we got rid of them. Right, that that did work. I I don't think you can repeat that today. I certainly don't think you can repeat the deployment in Europe today uh, with public uh, public mood. But I've never seen the need to have. You know, they've got these short range ballistic uh, uh, ballistic missiles, and we need them too. And I I, I view the sea launch thing and the and the ground cruise missile as kind of a distraction. I yeah I think the the argument that that could be a bargaining chip has some has some credence to it, but it it's definitely it's one of many arguments I guess you can make. Um, one thing you go into there and that I actually want to pick up on is the proper, proportionality response, um, how people react and react from scale because you can react if somebody fires a nuclear weapon at you, you can react um, more aggressively. Obviously, you might be incensed, you might something bigger on on the way might react with a similar size warhead if you have it at hand, or you might might react asymmetrically. Um, states have different weapons in an arsenal, for example, cyber attacks. If if Russia or the United States is targeted by something, some, something like that, if the politics of the day allow them to, they might choose to react in a asymmetric way, for example, wiping out a power grid or two, which can also cause significant damage. Um, while not um, wasting a nuclear warhead, even if they have a few. Yeah, this I, I think this all nestles into the uh, issue of sust sustaining deterrence uh, to keep that stalemate um, regarding escalation, right? So I, I think there's something, some people have written that nuclear weapons don't provide a benefit in coercion that in, in struggles, non-military struggles, nuclear weapon states don't do better than others. Um, I've, I found most of that research not very convincing. And one of the problems with it is I don't think they recognize that there's something different about nuclear weapon states and it's not just the nuclear weapons. So uh, North Korea says, hey, we've got a nuclear deterrent, but they also have a huge army huge artillery forces. Nuclear weapon states 
are all considered to have, uh, at least relative to their their place, very uh, strong, or either efficient and effective or large conventional forces and capabilities. And I think this cuts to the issue of if if you threaten to retaliate with a nuclear weapon uh, for any um, uh, transgression or, or a serious, like a military transgression or cyber, like you talked about, it's it's probably not going to be believed. You know, to go from zero to 100 kilometers an hour in, you know, half a second, it probably isn't going to be believed. United States strategists, I think, have always felt that if you have the capability to fight through higher and higher levels of violence without resorting to the weapons, then it, it's more credible when you reach for one or threaten to reach for one. So this, this brings up this issue of lower yield weapons in, con, in, in broader context. One of the worries, criticisms of low yield weapons is that they're, folks are worried that the, what's called the threshold for use will be lowered, that, that yeah. since they do less damage or can do less damage, states will be more likely to use them. Now, one, one thing to consider is everyone has, <laughs> these different cultures, different governing structures have different thresholds at different times. You brought up rationality, and I used to always like to talk, ask if people have ever been at an auction. And you've, you've seen something you want to buy and you say, okay, I'll pay a thousand crowns for it. And you walk away with it for 2,500 crowns, <laughs> you know, because you change during, during the event. And certainly during military conflict, you start to change, you start to change decisions and your, your um, willingness to, to accept uh, uh, damage might change. Uh, I could go in either you know, either direction. But um, if, if you have more options, we, we always thought it was great to be able to provide the president capability options as much as possible so that the president would feel they, were, they had effect or were relevant in, in crises. So yeah. uh, when it comes to lower yield in general, I don't see them as, as more dangerous at all. Matter of fact, I see them in, as in helping to sustain that stalemate in, in serious crises that might not be uh, nuclear. You just brought up something I was thinking about quite a bit earlier is that you need to have a large or um, at least capable conventional military in order to make your, um, your nu nuclear arsenal believable if you're to use it. Um, like we said before, there's this theory of the case that if if the theory of nuclear weapons being the end-all, be-all was correct, then you wouldn't see states going into alliances or maintaining conventional militaries. That kind of that kind of analysis there falls on this being that if you only have the nuclear weapons, then deterrence factor of the nuclear weapons is reduced because you don't have any other ways of escalating um, up to that point. You can't threaten to react with nuclear weapons to everything. And a lot of people have pointed to Putin since, uh, 
2017, and and the Russian exercises, uh, or even vocal threats against Sweden, but the integration of the nuclear and non-nuclear in the Russian exercises. Um, but uh, a lot of people have read into Russian doctrinal statements or policy statements that they would plan to use nuclear weapons much earlier in a conventional conflict in Europe than we would expect in an attempt to persuade the United States not to bring more conventional forces to bear and to back, to back down. So if they do it early, they won't destroy so many Americans and, and the Americans don't have that much military capability in Europe is is the way this theory goes so uh what do we have to convince putin that there's no circumstance under which that uh would would work and and to go back to the late 50s with massive retaliation would not be a credible uh a credible uh response and certainly it doesn't call for purely a nuclear uh deterrent you know uh Many other uh, capabilities can be integrated and, and, and dem demonstrated and communicated uh, to, uh, to increase deterrence during escalation of, of a conflict. Yeah, the U.S. does maintain a fair deal of um, resources, resources in, in Europe, for example. Yeah, that's right. Uh, through NATO in the United States, oh, sorry, in, in Germany, in, in France, and in, in the U.K., and of course, these countries do also, well, France and the UK do maintain their own arsenals, which plays into the, the situation in Europe. Um, I think that if if Russia were to use nuclear weapons as well, we'd have to have to weigh in. Well, if Russia would have to use nuclear weapons in on the European continent, you'd have to weigh in how France and the UK would react to that as well, because they wouldn't be the only state reacting negatively, I guess, you could, if you put it mildly. No, that, that that's absolutely correct, and of course there are NATO uh, NATO nations that participate in in nuclear burden sharing that sustain uh, uh, fighter capability to drop uh, drop nuclear weapons supplied by the United States. Uh, not that many people find that current capability very militarily uh, relevant. It certainly is a political statement of solidarity. Uh, that's, you know, that continues in the alliance. The threats against nuclear arsenals, what we're seeing um, in modern times is that the, the picture is changing, of course. You don't have the ability to maintain a nuclear arsenal without having a risk to it as well. Um, for example, threats of cyber attacks and such, such as that. How should you think about that? What, what are the, um, the non-nuclear threats against nuclear weapons, um, cyber attacks and such that that the U.S. and other countries should be looking at or are looking at? Yes, yeah, so cyber and hypersonics, I think, are the ones that people write about most right now. And, and, and this, this cuts partly to uh, not all arsenals are equally uh, susceptible, vulnerable to, to these things. So let me have, make a couple of comments about why the U.S. arsenal uh, looks the way it does right now because it's relevant to these uh, vulnerability to these new threats. Um, if, you, if you have a, an implicit threat or explicit threat, but an implicit threat, if you're trying to deter someone, you're trying to 
you, you're, you're telling them you could damage something that they value, right? Yeah. So different governments, different cultures value different things. Um, the United States has always wanted to protect its civilian population, right? And, and allied populations. So the citizens are the, the ones the United States values. I, I posit that, so that means we have to protect our cities, right? I posit that the Russians and the Chinese don't have the same value proposition, right? Which means they don't, they wouldn't necessarily deploy an arsenal to deter attacks on their cities. Now, that said, the Russians, I think, still probably maintain an anti-ballistic missile capability around, around Moscow, and they're certainly trying to do anti-ballistic missile improvements. <clears throat> but my point here is the U.S. arsenal, we've got uh, the submarine ballistic missiles, which, uh, which we've talked about, that we keep a certain percentage of those at sea all the time so that they are uh, hidden undercurrent technology, but this is another technology one's worried about. If you look at drone technology, you know, use in agriculture, use in all, all sorts of mapping, all sorts of different things. And then you think about the potential to maybe apply that at scale in areas of the ocean. Uh, in other words, uh, putting detectors all, you know, who, who knows how long submarines will remain uh, invisible, so to speak. And, yeah. and if they can be found, now we've got a problem because they're no longer um, survivable and they are many eggs in a basket. They become an enticement. So the United States keeps the submarines because they've been survivable. We can use them in retaliation. Now, that doesn't mean Russia thinks they're a retaliatory weapon, but that's, that's the way we present them and we think they are. We also have bombers, right, which are no longer considered much of a, a destabilizing threat anywhere, aircraft, because of changes in technology and uh, the, the, it getting harder and harder to hide, right, which is the original reason the United States developed intercontinental ballistic missiles, because in the late 50s, we were worried about the bombers being able to get through into the Soviet Union. So the United States has 450 ICBM uh, deployed or 450 silos <clears throat> across the United States. They're all single warhead. In order to destroy that, and they can all be launched in a matter of minutes. In order to destroy them, you would have to spend, some people say, two, maybe three weapons on each silo, right, on each missile. And right now, the United States and, and Russia have 1,550 warheads. Now, it's treaty math, so they're, they're weird numbers. But 1,550 weapons, let's say, that can be used, that would deplete the Russian arsenal. Now, if we didn't, and many arms control disarmament people are really nervous about the ICBMs because they can be launched so quickly, um, so they want them taken off alert or eliminated. The problem, one of the problems in my view as a strategist with that is then, so when you target another force's nuclear capabilities called counter force targeting, I'm destroying their nuclear capabilities or the military capabilities. Well, when you, when you 
target cities is called counter value. They're, they are destroying what we value, which is our population centers. If we don't force them into counter uh, force targeting, they can turn to counter value targeting and they can credibly threaten our cities. Right now they can't credibly threaten New York. It, it, just, it, it just wouldn't be credible because the damage we could do and still have the retaliation of the submarines would, would be unspeakable. Un, un, uh, it would be unacceptable. So, so this, uh, that's why it, the U.S. arsenal looks the way it does. We're trying to force other people not to be able to credibly threaten our population centers. Now, the dynamics are different for China in India, India and Pakistan, uh, you know, uh, but with the U.S., uh, that's uh, that's why it that's why it, the way it is. Now, back to your point about technologies, Tabby. Those I, those ICBMs on the ground, in order to launch them that quickly, you have to have really good secure communications. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're actually designed to be able to be launched during nuclear strikes on the US. That's the level of rigor. And 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 that means if you can if you can make the United States believe that your communications are compromised or you can slow them or violate them, then all of a sudden there's a window where an adversary knows that those weapons are irrelevant. So so maintaining that force which we want to do to maintain to to keep our cities uh, free from threat i think will become increasingly increasingly uh, put, put increasing pressure uh, on the command and control due to uh, cyber and, and and maybe some other technological things now with hypersonics people worry that well you can't see them coming they go really really fast and you know they could destroy mm -hmm. like they could destroy all the ICBMs well you know if if weapons start going off in in US cities or in the heart of the United States um there's going to be a pretty rapid response it doesn't matter if they're nuclear or not and and in order to generate enough hypersonic weapons to try to destroy the US arsenal uh, that couldn't be done and they couldn't be deployed in secret. So it's not something that would, ha would happen over, overnight. But those are two of the main technologies I, I read about the most. The United States would not be um, sitting around twiddling its thumbs while watching this happen. It would not be a passive actor watching supersonic weapons being right. constructed and deployed. None of this would be a shot out of the blue, even. I mean, hmm. even if there's a crisis, there would probably be a run up to the crisis. Yeah, something that made the existence of the other actor untenable to the to them, and you'd have to a, attempt to remove them from play, even if that's um, going to be a foolish act in the long run. I think we can basically round up there with one final thing, and that is the new start uh, treat conversations in June, the the new strategic arms reduction treaties um, that are being negotiated between Russia and the United States. Um, the United States has been, made some plays to include China in those talks. Um, any thoughts? Well, that's, I mean, that's 
that's been mentioned that's been mentioned many times and uh, but i know it's uh, a much stronger push now um i just don't see any reason why it would happen i don't see any reason why china would and and china's already made public statements about uh yeah until the us gets down to our level um we're not interested in thinking about it um you know i i think this is where trump missed an opportunity to look strong which he doesn't like to miss, I think, is that if when he'd come into office, he'd offered to extend that treaty, uh, he he could have taken the lead on that. And it wouldn't have cost the United States anything. My colleagues and I think the treaty is, is quite helpful. Um, it does offer some amount of, of visibility, of verifiable, verifiability uh, into the Russians, some visibility into the Russian arsenal. Um, but as long as people respect the caps um, and the and the rules, it we don't have to worry about arms races or or, or other things. I, you know, I, I think I think the new start was was working well. I think Trump could have, instead of looking at it as a bad deal, um, could have said, "Hey, um, I'm going to take the lead on this. We're going to extend it for two years, and then we're going to try to get." China in after the two years. He didn't play it that way. Um, I think China is uh, something of a diversion in this issue um, so that they can say as an excuse, somebody can say, well, we can't get a new start because China won't play. That doesn't solve the issue with what about between the United States and Russia? You know, I, 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 we still, uh, Russia is still in the United States doctrine, the principal uh, military threat when it comes to nuclear issues, right? And China is our principal competitor uh, strategically is the way the U.S. government looks at that now. But, uh, yeah, I don't see any chance for new start under Trump um, in, unless they'll get off the China thing and, and just extend it. And I, I think I think that's, you know, pretty unfortunate. I, I do think it's helpful to have a strategic strategic weapons. Uh, you know, it doesn't cover all nuclear weapons, of course, uh, but I still like covering the ones we have with a, with a treaty. The other thing that's troubling is Russia's just finishing its modernization. Its uh, assembly lines are there and everything else. The United States is just kind of starting its modernization. So if Russia wanted to say, hey, okay, you don't want the treaty anymore, we'll start building more weapons. Uh, the United States is uh, going to be hard pressed to try to catch up if, if we wanted to catch up and over the decades, we haven't always demanded superiority, but we've usually uh, demanded qualitative superiority and parity. Yeah. So yeah. it'd be quite a, quite a contrast if, if we didn't try uh, to stay with them, if they decided to build more. And I think we can round off there. Um, this is definitely gonna have to be a conversation we come back to, um, after the US election, depending on how it results, I think a President Joe Biden would be a very different um, uh, conversation than a President Trump when it comes to nuclear deterrence. He's a bit less uh, prone to aggression and shows of strength, I believe. Something interesting about that, and that this will be fascinating if, if, if you know, Biden wins and is looking like there's a pretty good chance of that. Um, so that when Obama came in 
and uh, Biden, I think, will do the. I know will do the same. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll wager money will do the same. They'll bring a, a, a large number of disarmament people, nuclear disarmament people, into the administration. And uh, you know, Obama had one in an assistant secretary of defense position. We've had a NATO ambassador who was anti-nuclear, and uh, they'll bring a lot of these, uh, some of these people back in. And when Biden writes his nuclear policy, policy review, we'll see what his strategy is. But it's interesting to note that when Obama brought these people in, his nuclear posture, his nuclear strategy didn't change very much. And Trump's didn't change very much. The U.S. nuclear strategy has been fairly consistent for decades now. And even presidents or, or senior policy people and uh, when push comes to shove, tend to stick with the larger strategy, even if they'll make changes on the margins about modernization or specific uh, specific programs. Uh, so I, I'll be really interested, uh, you know, next year, maybe we come back to this in a year and a half uh, when they're in uh, making the sausage on the new, uh, the new strategy and we can uh, talk about what might change and what might not. Yeah, this is a this will be a discussion we'll have at Rotary as well. I think if we have meetings again in the future. Thanks so much, Hunter, and I'll see you whenever Stockholm International gets its next meeting. Thanks, Tevi. Good luck with the podcast here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for making it to the end of a another episode of Rotrack Talks. This podcast is brought to you by Rotrack Sweden, together with World of Rotrack. My name is, as usual, Tavi Wickman. I am the host and editor of this podcast. We have also had contributions with questions from Justice Koki, Elin Schrieffer, and Mona Musa, who are active in the Roadrack Club of Stockholm, U Gordon. So if you have any questions, suggestions, or any comments, queries, and concerns, please do send us a message on Instagram or Facebook, and we'll get, get back to you as best we can. If you are not a member of Rotary yet, please do join us. We do have a lot of fun. If you're under 30, consider Rotaract. Otherwise, Rotary is a great fit for you. If you want to make some new friends, contribute to your local society, and of course, excel in whatever you want to do. So until next week, have a great weekend. <laughs>